friends, good morning. It's a real privilege for Liz and I to be uh, with you this morning. As Ashley said, uh, my name, for those of you who don't know me, is Andy Street. And those of you who do know me, well, you know I'm telling the truth. Uh, my wife and I are Devonian. She was from Plymouth, and I was born and brought up in a little uh, coastal village halfway between Paynton, Torquay, and Plymouth. So it's nice in some ways to be home this morning. It's a real privilege for us to be at church. The uh, COVID rules, restrictions in Wales are more severe than they are for your good selves, so we haven't been able to go back to our own church because of the size of the building and the logistics since March 2020. So it really is nice to be amongst a, a live audience and not looking at a, a computer screen. As Ashley intimated, we're going to look at a uh, passage this morning, uh, which is commonly referred to as the Transfiguration. Now, it is found in three Gospels, Matthew chapter 17, Mark chapter 9, which we'll focus on this morning, and also Luke chapter 9. But what I have done, and I trust you will uh, permit me to do this, I have merged the three accounts so we get the full beauty and the full splendor of the gospel narrative concerning this uh, wonderful passage, wonderful event. So Mark 9 is probably the, the primary focus, but there will be additional verses brought in from Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. And so we read, after six days... Jesus took Peter and John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray, where he was transfigured before them. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. It shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light, dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them as bright as a flash of lightning. Just then, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say because they were so frightened. While he was speaking, a bright cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I love, whom I have chosen. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. 
terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. Suddenly, when the voice had spoken, they looked around. They no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. The next day, they were coming down the mountain. Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. But I'm sure the Lord will bless that reading to us from his word this morning. In terms of the context, this event is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. That are the Gospels by Matthew, Mark and Luke. Some of the details vary slightly as the writers focus on different aspects. But the narrative corresponds. On each occasion, it follows Peter's declaration at Caesarea Philippi that Jesus was the Christ. And also it follows Jesus' teaching that he, the Messiah, would be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he would be killed, and on the third day raised to life again. Jesus then goes on to teach the cost of true discipleship, in the light of the return of Messiah. And says there are some who are standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now there are different interpretations about what Jesus actually meant when he said these words. But most scholars believe he was referring to the event of which we have read, namely the transfiguration. In terms of the place, there are those who suggest that this event took place on Mount Tabor. Others suggest that Mount Hermon is the location, the highest mountain in the area, rising to almost 3,000 metres and located only a short distance of 12 miles from Caesarea Philippi. But wherever it took place is not really of major importance. In terms of the participants, all three gospel writers agree that Peter and James and John were chosen to accompany Jesus up the mountain. If you were to read through the gospels, you will find that these three are repeatedly selected by the Lord Jesus for special revelations at special moments in his life. Luke records that the purpose of the ascent was to enable Jesus to pray. And this was often his practice before he revealed any major revelation about himself. Mount Hermon was a steep climb, no doubt about that. And theirs was a steep climb physically 
and spiritually too, as it turned out. They were totally unprepared for the revelation that they would have on arriving at the summit. The higher one climbs, the larger the vista, the better the view. And such is true of spiritual matters also. You see, dear friend, it's possible to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but not enjoy the Christian life as we should. And perhaps that's true of some here this morning. To live a vibrant Christian life, which enjoys a deeper experience of Jesus Christ, requires effort, energy, discipline, sacrifice, and determination. It's much more than merely pitching up to church services, important though that is for fellowship and spiritual growth. And consequently, only a few reach the summit of Christian life experience and enjoy the panorama as they should. And so the challenge comes to us, those of us who profess to be believers in the Lord Jesus this morning, how vibrant is my Christian life? Am I enjoying the panoramic view of the blessings of God? Or is my experience of such more mundane and more akin to that of the world? In terms of the event, we read that as Jesus prayed, he was transfigured before them. The word used here is metamorphosis, which describes a change of external form without a change of essential being. For example, the caterpillar changing into a butterfly. The Gospel writers describe this in slightly different ways, but each one struggles to adequately describe the event. You see, this vision points forward to how Jesus will appear when he comes to the world in power and great glory. That is still future. But it also points back to the glory that he had with God the Father before the world began. And here he reassumes that glory. His outward appearance changes to mirror the inward reality. The veil of flesh was very thin. And here it is lifted momentarily. And words just cannot describe the sight. His clothes become supernaturally white. He radiates indescribable light and purity as never seen before. We are in the presence of the glory of God radiating through Christ. And we get a momentary glimpse of the eternal and essential glory of the Son of God, which he had before the foundation of the world, but which, 
for the duration of his time here on earth was veiled, covered in a human body. Here the curtain of time is drawn aside and they see Jesus as he really is. They see him as one day that we will see him. As one day the whole universe of God will see him. This is the future, but this is reality too. Whilst all this was happening, two other participants joined Jesus and his disciples, namely Moses and Elijah. And they begin a conversation with Jesus about his forthcoming death on the cross. They speak of his decease, his exodus, his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. Friends, the company we keep says something about the person we are. And this was by no means an extremely select group. Moses, the lawgiver in Israel's history, who met with God on another mountain, Mount Sinai. Elijah, the most revered prophet of Israel, who stood against the forces of evil for God on another mountain, Mount Carmel. Moses, the author of the first five books in the Bible, John, the author of the last books in the Bible. James, the martyr, one of the most prominent Christian leaders of the first century, martyred for his faith. Peter, the messenger who took on the Jewish establishment at Pentecost with his powerful preaching. And John, the minister, who wrote more than any other biblical writer about the glory of the Lord Jesus, the Son of Man. What a select company this was. But this rendezvous raises many questions, in my mind at least. Where had Moses and Elijah come from? Friends, can I say at this stage, I'm not going to answer these questions. They're for you. How did they know that Jesus would shortly die on the cross, which at that time was still future? How did the disciples know who they were? Moses preceded them by 1,400 years. Elijah preceded them by 900 years. Neither wore a name badge saying, hi, my name is Moses, my name is Elijah, I'm your waiter for tonight. Does this indicate what life will be like in heaven or in the coming kingdom? Whatever, you must draw your own conclusions. But with this introduction, the revelation begins. And I would like to suggest this morning the disciples learned three things. First of all, they learned that Jesus is the centerpiece of Scripture. And so we read, Behold, two men 
taught with him who were Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah were the two giants in the Old Testament. Each represented something bigger than themselves. Between them, they were representing the witness of the entire Old Testament scriptures. These were often divided into two sections. On the one hand, the law, and on the other hand, the prophets. And the Lord Jesus often referred to the Old Testament scriptures by this title, the law and the prophets. The Old Testament scriptures find their meaning and their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, no matter how great they were, were only a vehicle which pointed towards the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the shadow, but he was the substance, because he is greater than the Old Testament scriptures. The law and the prophets were equal partners in God's plan. But Jesus was supreme in that plan. He is the centerpiece of scripture. He is the person around whom all the plans and purposes of God revolve. And it begs the question this morning, is he the centerpiece of my life? Thus, after he died at Calvary, when an unknown stranger, who we know with hindsight to be Jesus himself, speaks to two travellers journeying on the road to Emmaus, he begins at Moses and all the prophets and explains to them what was said about him in all the scriptures. What was Peter's motive in suggesting the construction of three shelters? We will never know. But in so doing, he seems to be putting Moses and Elijah and the Old Testament scriptures and all that he'd been brought up with on a level par with Jesus Christ. And that can never be. Jesus Christ has no rivals, he has no equals, he has no successors. You cannot improve on him because he is absolute perfection itself. He is the centre figure of scripture and forever stands supreme. Jesus, the centrepiece of scripture. But secondly, they learn that Jesus is the saviour of the world. Moses and Elijah appeared in glory, and they spoke of his decease, his exodus, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. The phrase deceased is better translated exodus. And that shows that Moses and Elijah are fully aware 
of Jesus' forthcoming death and resurrection, even though for him it is still future. Ascending. If anyone knew about the historical Exodus, it was, of course, Moses, because he was the leader of the people of Israel during that time. He knew more than anyone about the nation's journey from the bondage of Egypt to the promised land. And its mention would have awakened vivid images in the, uh, in the minds of Peter and James and John also of Israel's oppression, their slavery and bondage in Egypt, the deliverance which was accomplished following the series of plagues, ultimately accomplished by the shed blood of the Lamb, enduring the trials and the tests in the wilderness for over 40 years until they finally reached the promised land. The Old Testament exodus, then, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This exodus, of which they now speak, is bigger and better still. The Bible says that each one of us is born in sin, and thus we are slaves to sin. But Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He was crucified for our sins, and we can be saved from the penalty of that sin because of his shed blood. And all who put their faith and trust in him endure the trials and tests of life, but will ultimately live with him in heaven. And thus the challenge comes to each one of us this morning. Is he my saviour? Do I know the joy of my sins being forgiven? and the presence of God in my life. If not, this is something that we should give serious consideration to. And if appropriate, confess that sin to God, seeking his forgiveness, and thereby embarking on a new life with Jesus at the centre. Oh, to have been able to listen in on that conversation. I do not wish to have been there. Moses and Elijah from a previous era, validating Jesus' mission and celebrating his coming death. All of their efforts had been leading up to this moment. All the sacrifices and the offerings recorded in the Old Testament with which they were familiar, were all about him and were all fulfilled in him. Yes, Jesus is the centerpiece of scripture. He's the saviour of the world. But they also learn that he is the son of God. Previously at Caesarea Philippi, Peter declared that Jesus was the Messiah. But that was merely scratching the surface. He is not just the Messiah for the Jews. He is the Son of God. But he's also God 
the Son. 100% God. 100% man. There was a time as a young Christian, I used to argue over that. I've learned differently. I worship over Charles Wesley was right when he wrote his famous carol, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Again, what was in Peter's mind as he suggested building three proofs? <laughs> we'll never know. Did he want to continue the experience? Did he understand the implication of what was being said and wanted Jesus to avoid the cross? But Peter must learn, as we must learn, that suffering and glory go hand in hand. Without one, there cannot be the other. And thus, after Calvary, when that unknown stranger who we now know the identity of speaks to those two walking on the road, he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? It's clear, however, that Peter's suggestion did not have the approval of heaven. A cloud came and overshadowed them, causing them to fear. And they heard the voice of God speaking. This is my beloved son, whom I love, whom I've chosen, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Years earlier on Mount Sinai, ten commandments were given. Here only one is given. Listen to him. On one previous occasion at Jesus' baptism, God's voice had been heard declaring his pleasure in Jesus. And that commendation referred to the hidden life of Lord Jesus prior to his public ministry. Here God speaks again this time to declare his delight in the public life of teaching and miracles undertaken by the Lord Jesus. The expression, my son, carries with it the underlying truth that Jesus is the only son. Thus Peter's suggestion of three shelters was sorely misplaced. Because this was not a trio of equals. Moses and Elijah were great servants. Of that there is no doubt. But there can only ever be one son. They were the heralds. But he is the king. They promised much. But he is the fulfillment. They were the first rays of the spiritual dawn. But he is the blinding sun in its noonday splendor. Jesus Christ has no limitations. He has no equals. He has no rivals. 
He depends on nothing for his existence, but everything that exists depends on him. Today we use terminology such as awesome or amazing, and we know what we mean. But such terminology should rightly be reserved for someone who is truly stellar. And there's only one person who meets that criteria, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Suddenly all became quiet. The guests had gone, and the disciples were once more alone with Jesus. He touches them and encourages them to get up and not be afraid. And the following day they descend the mountain trading the glories of the summit for the grime of the valley. Exchanging the wonder of the mountaintop for the trials and difficulties they will face in a hurting, broken world. On occasions, we too enjoy the mountaintop experience in our Christian lives. The problem is, it doesn't last. And like the disciples, we too have to descend the mountain and continue our pilgrimage in the valley of life. But how wonderful to know that whether it's the brightness of the mountain top or the darkness and challenge of the valley, we need not because he is always there with us. Always there with those who love him and acknowledge him as Saviour and Lord. He who is the centerpiece of Scripture, the Saviour of the world, the Son of God, has promised that he will never leave us or let us down. And he's not broken that promise yet. And he never will. And so like Peter and James and John, we too must turn our eyes on Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And as we do, and whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, we will find that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. May God bless his word to our hearts this morning.